My name is Patricia Kathleen, and this podcast series will contain interviews I conduct with women, female-identified, and non-binary individuals regarding their professional stories and personal narrative as it relates to their perspective. This podcast is designed to hold a space for all individuals to learn from their counterparts, regardless of age, status, or industry. We intend to transparently investigate the evolving global dialogue regarding underrepresented figures in all industries across the USA and abroad. By hosting these stories and conversations, we aim to contribute to the changing platform and representation of these individuals for the future. If you are enjoying this podcast series, be sure to check out our subsequent series called Roundtable with Patricia Kathleen, where we talk with a panel of guests regarding key topics that arise in these individual interviews. You can subscribe to all of our podcast series on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, as well as our website, patriciacathleen.com. You can also contact me directly via this website or through my media website, wild.agency. That's W-I-L-D-E dot agency. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. I am your host, Patricia, and today I'm sitting down with Marilee Orsini. She is the president and CEO of Core Cubed, podcast host, and an at-home healthcare advocate. You can discover more about her and her companies and her endeavors on website corecubed.com. Welcome, Marilee. Thank you, Patricia. Really nice to be here with you today. I'm excited. I, we were talking off the record just now, and um, I was talking to you about it's not just the auspiciousness is how appropriate some of your advocacy work is um, right now in the cultural climate, but I feel like it's a, a fairly under-discussed uh, topic of conversation, and so I, I really look forward to getting your narrative and your story online um, with us here today. For everyone listening, a quick roadmap of today's podcast. We will look at uh, just briefly at uh, Marilee's uh, academic uh, background and early professional life, and then we'll look at unpacking her company, Core Cubed. And um, we'll spend the bulk of our time discussing and kind of uncovering aspects that Marilee speaks frequently to about um, help choose home and this kind of at-home healthcare um, advocacy work that she has um, and all of her knowledge therein. Then we'll turn our efforts towards unpacking goals that she may have or looking towards goals that she may have for the next one to three years, which I know has changed for a lot of people we've spoken to recently. We'll wrap everything up with advice that she has for those of you who are looking to learn more about her podcast work, her um, advocacy work, or maybe her business. A quick bio on Marilee before I start peppering her with questions. Marilee Orsini is the president and CEO of CoreCubed, is considered a thought leader in the healthcare at-home industry, and is involved in numerous organizations providing insight and advice. Orsini is a leader in the Help Choose Home initiative and podcast creator and host in which she focuses on educating how and when to choose healthcare at home. Orsini won a Lifetime Achievement in Business Award at the 2017 Stevie Awards for Women in Business. Orsini's business ownership began with a geriatric care managed in-home care agency, a venture that garnered her the prestigious Ernst & Young Entrepreneurship of the Year Award in 1996. She's the past chair of the Private Duty Home Care Association of America and has served on the boards of the National Association for Home Care and Hospice and the National Association of Geriatric Care Managers, now called Aging Life Care Professionals. 
So um, Marilee, I really do want to unpack all of that and everything that you've done at CoreCube, but I'm hoping you can offer us a brief overview of your early academic and professional life to kind of garner a sense of what your foundation was like prior to these endeavors. Um, thank you, Patricia. Well, I uh, got a master's in social work early. And when I had that master's in social work, um, was looking around for what could I do to make the greatest impact in the world and realized one of my skill sets is really exploring options and putting things together that haven't been done before. And at that point in time, a friend of mine who ran the Jewish Family Vocational Services in Louisville, Kentucky, where I lived at the time, asked me if I could provide some really like childcare services only for um, a client of theirs whose wife uh, needed some sitting. And that was my introduction, number one, to Alzheimer's, and number two, to what I was going to do for the rest of my life, which was help people stay at home with care. So that particular client, um, we took her and we had her for maybe a week, maybe two weeks, and then her husband died unexpectedly and we inherited her. So that was really my introduction to how does one provide 24-7, 365 care and the beginning of my first business, which was Elder Care Solutions. And I did that. I was a, became a geriatric care manager at the time there, we didn't even know what it was, but but what I was doing was helping people figure out how did they want to live the rest of their lives and did they want to age in place or move somewhere else. And I enlisted the help of, at that time in Louisville, there were three master's level social work schools and I took students from those. We researched and we put together training and we put together all kinds of systems that then allowed us to continue to grow that business, which was unique at the time and it is um, it's a model that um, is is now considered the very best model of care which is a geriatric care managed home care model mm -hmm. um, because you have staff that goes in but you also have another layer of uh, care where someone is actually a surrogate a daughter, if you will, or a surrogate child, helping that person and that family decide where do they want to spend the rest of their day, sort of a frailty to the grave plan. And, um, and, and that is, um, that's the most popular type model of care today. Yeah. And it sounds like, so was it a brokerage? Did you take, were you taking on clients and, and kind of individualizing the different varieties or aspects that come along with that um, that unique plan for them, or were you also helping implement them and staffing it? Oh, we implemented and staffed it, but we employed everyone, we trained everyone, we monitored okay. and supervised everyone, and then if necessary, we had another level of a social worker or nurse care manager who was assigned to the to the family or to the person and and stayed with them. So it was. Um, it was a more of a personal involvement with the family and totally at that point in time paid for privately there there is still wow. to this date there is no coverage for that kind of service and it is still very popular in america and uh, but most of it unfortunately people have to have the money to pay for yeah it's not subsidized and i think that's the most shocking thing i had thought for some reason 
when I had first become aware of these types of, you know, institutions or programs, um, it was when my grandparents was entering into one um, 25 plus years ago. And I had thought um, just naively or maybe lazily that it, things had become improved. You know, I knew that the growing population of our elderly was happening with the longevity of the lifespan increasing. And I had thought that there would be subsidies you know, and um, things like that for those institutions was kind of shocked to find out that there wasn't and there is no uh, a federal, you know, there's no consensus. It's state to state and all of those things. But we will unpack that. That's a fascinating start. <laughs> I had no idea that was your first business either. I first want to look at um, before we climb into those, um, what we're going to get into, which was, um, you know, this kind of at home um, healthcare. Uh, I want to talk about your company, Core Cubed, uh, <laughs> and um, when it was founded, you've received accolades, a ton of accolades for it, and um, I kind of want to talk about the growth and what it is, and just in a nutshell, the, the, the main body of Core Cubed. Well, Core Cubed is really a marketing business for the healthcare at home industry. Um, and because you asked me the first question, I can tell you that our marketing, well, it started out digital, even though we started the company in 1998. I was a very early entrant into technology and into using, um, using technology. So the, I knew back in 1998 how important the web was going to be. And I also knew, um, based on what you just said, you had no idea. I would say 98% of the people in America have no idea when they get to needing care for a loved one, an elderly loved one. They have no idea that there's not um, a fail-safe support system to be able to care for that person. So we set about using Core Cubed to actually educate. So our, and, it, and you understand marketing and you understand all of the digital components of it and the social media component of it. So you know that content is crucial. So mm -hmm. what we're doing with our healthcare at home agencies that we're marketing for is we're really educating. So the whole taking my concept of how do you educate people about what's in their best interest and what's available to them? That's really what we do, but we do it on a pretty wide scale and we do it um, through education. So we, you know, we're writing blogs, we're creating websites, we're performing social media functions, we're doing nurturing campaigns, but all really based on educating people about either specific issues that one of their loved ones might have or just about healthcare at home in general. So the business was there to educate. Was it there to also create um, any kind of relationship? Was it there to help facilitate connections or was it just there to offer um, people information? Well, we, we're still today doing all of that. So depending on what the client needs and what their standing is in the community and how good a service they have, then we just take that information and we really do try to position them in their service area for whatever they are doing best and which would be whatever they're doing that would be in the best interest of, um, of their clients. Yeah. When you launched it, um, did you have co-founders? And did you have any funding? How did that take off? I had um, a partner who also was a funder. He's a um, was a longtime friend of mine in Louisville and a, and a venture capitalist, and um, and he owned ten percent of the company, but he does not anymore. I had I now own one hundred percent as of about 
I want to say maybe somewhere between three and five years ago, I'd have to look. Hmm. But he was with me and, and provided financial support and also um, just, you know, support. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's an interesting time to have it take off. There have been a lot of um, brokerage houses between insurance level, uh, insurance agencies and customers and clients of all levels, you know, that have kind of taken off at least in the late 90s and the early aughts. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like you were this flagship in doing what you were doing and still kind of are, um, shockingly. And I'm wondering, how did you guide when you don't have any colleagues or conventions that are based around, you know, geared towards what you're doing when you're kind of a singular or one of three fish in that sea? How do you guide what you're doing, your movement forward, the trajectory you want to stay on? Um, well, we set goals and we um, we try to figure out how to accomplish those goals. And we pay very close attention to what's happening in the market. Um Oddly enough, what is happening with COVID-19 is um, the no one wants to be in a congregate care facility right now because everyone has seen the numbers and understands how this virus spreads. So right. uh, healthcare at home is really, um, after the initial scare, healthcare at home has now really become the preferred care uh, model of choice. And The other thing is, when I started my company, I didn't tell you this, but in 1998, when I started my company, I started it as a virtual company. So we were very early virtual company. (laughs) And we have maintained that model. So we did not miss a beat. On our one of our staff meetings, we have a you know Monday stand-up meetings, and on one of those staff meetings, probably two or three weeks ago, one of our very young employees said, uh, "No, it's just a normal week for me. I don't have anything special." And I said, "Wait, you don't understand how unusual that is. Here we are in the middle of a pandemic, and we have not missed a beat. No. So, um, and we're actually." Um, picking up more clients because people were resistant to using digital marketing. Um, And that's what they're realizing now is that's the only game in town. So everyone has to to learn how to do it. And we're just ahead of the game. Absolutely. And I thought, you know, in the 90s, um, in the late 90s, I I had my my head in some marketing, um, early marketing games. This was when print was still like wildly being used, snail mail, all of that stuff. And people had talked about different industries that would be less susceptible to online marketing. And it was always those of um, like 60 to 65 and over, you know? And so it's, it's interesting to me and it's brave and it's just so, I wonder um, how you came about, like your, your clientele, your market, the industry you were addressing, you have this solely launched virtual online presence in the late 90s when everyone was saying, you can do it, but you cannot do it for the elderly. And that's your entire community. And that's your entire, the, the basis of your business. Did you ever hit any pushback where people uh, were saying your marketing towards a, a <laughs> that doesn't receive online marketing or no? <laughs> you know, people telling me I shouldn't be doing something has never stopped me from doing it. So, yeah. um, but our target, if you think about who's actually purchasing the services, it's usually not the older person themselves. Yeah. It's usually the adult children or sometimes the grandchildren. So we really weren't targeting the older people themselves. We were targeting those people who care for them and who make the decisions for them or help them make the decisions. You know, home care is one of the few industries that provides a service that the people don't really want. So 
I haven't met anyone yet, I don't think, who really wants to have a nurse or an aide come into their home. Right. They're doing it because they have to do it. It's not, you know, not a choice. So, um, so it's odd. But yes, the resistance we met, though, was because people were so used to sitting down in a room with people and eyeballing people and, um, you know, making joint decisions collectively. And in the last, I want to say maybe five years, we don't get that um, and we would get pushback because we weren't physically located in a town. We weren't local. And in the last five years, we don't get that objection anymore at all. People realize we've been doing this now for a long time. We are the experts in the nation and we really know what we're doing and we understand the industry. So um, they are, they're not going to find that expertise locally. Yeah. I, and I think that it should have been even maybe before then, seeing as how you were the flagship of doing that. I want to turn towards you helping me understand and unpack for our audience um, the future of aging in place, uh, where it came from, first of all, so that people listening who haven't really gone through considering it, if you can give a synopsis of um, kind of where it was at in the 90s and then into the aughts and then where it is right now and then where you see the future going, like this lifeline of aging in place and what that means to you. Well, um, the one of the things is that the aging in place, thinking that there is an age that one becomes frail is um, mm -hmm. just not accurate. Right. Um, the other thing is that if you have met an 85-year-old who needs help, then you've met one 85-year-old who needs help. You're not going to find that replicated in other 85-year-olds. Some may be out running marathons or, yeah. you know, driving in, in races. So, um, so the aging in place concept um, is really ancient. I mean, families cared for their older people. Um, elders were respected. So it really has been... Um, in the last, gosh, I want to say in the last 20 years, which is really when I've been doing this, but 30 years, I guess, all total when I've been in this industry, um, people are starting to realize that being at home, if you can do that, is safer, it's more comfortable, there's a lot of um, different you know, comfort levels and values that you have if you're in familiar surroundings that are going to help you heal because the healing is not just the physical healing. You also have social um, needs. You have uh, spiritual needs. You have uh, dietary needs. There's all kinds of, of needs that people have, and those are going to vary from person to person. So whatever is important to people, they've pretty much established by where they live and who they live with so um, the our care at home moving back into the home um, because of COVID-19 is something that people are really taking another look at because they do not want to put their loved one in a in a setting and then people who are in these uh, congregate settings are moving out of those settings back into family members homes so um, it is it is from a policy perspective, still very problematic. Um, how we got where we are with no funding for long-term care in America is not going to be solved quickly. And we're really going to have to come together and figure out how do we want to do this? Um, because 
the, I, I suspect that people are going to really rebel at having to go into a congregate setting until this COVID-19 situation is completely over with. And some estimates are that, you know, maybe never, it may be several years before there's a vaccine or, or some right. type of um, medicine that's going to keep us healthy. Well, and so too are there, you know, there's ramifications, this domino effect with every kind of socioeconomic change that happens, um, kind of like what you're alluding to. But if we begin to um, bring our elderlies, you know, back into the home instead of um, having these group care facilities and things of that nature, our society and socioeconomic status begins to mirror that of countries that do that. You know, there's um, that's a there's a large European population that does that. There's Asiatic people that do that, where you have multiple generations living in the household. America's 1800s had that. Yes. But it it also has these different kind of. Um, it, it tends to start to stratify and re-identify the different classes, the different needs, the different healthcare needs. That in turn changes um, demand, you know, and reception of goods and things of that nature. And I'm wondering um, if that becomes part of the aftermath of people considering that, will that change part of, of how you advise? It, if someone having this um, healthcare at home, do you view it as healthcare in their individualized home or is it also healthcare um, at home in a family, a multi-generational family home? Well, we generally say home is wherever you feel home is or wherever you're comfortable being. So I think it could be intergeneration, intergenerational. It could be, um, a, you know, just a section of the house that is that you know that your grandparents or your great grandparents are going to actually live in that part of the house or there's, you know, granny flats and little tiny houses. There's all kinds of things happening now that might help us out in the future. I think the, the biggest thing is the, you know, the trend for people to live in different places. And that's the, that it probably more than anything contributed to the private duty or at least the private pay in home care because there were no children in the location where the parents were. And I'm, I'm pretty certain that trend has reversed itself. And I'm also seeing like I did, I'm 73, my husband is 85 and we both moved to Asheville, North Carolina so we could be near my two sons and my four grandchildren who live here within walking distance actually, and created a place to live that has a, a separate living place. So someone could either come live here or we could live and, you know, with multifamilies in the, in the same situation. So I, I just think the it's too early yet to see what's going to happen, but I'm seeing this happening, happening more and more where people yeah. are combining families. Yeah, I have seen that. And especially the relocation, like you're talking about, particularly that, or children relocating back to where their parents were with the aid of them or things of that nature. I have seen that as well over the past five years prior to um, COVID-19. I'm wondering, um, are there any, again, you know, I, my research hadn't included the thought uh, process of this, but are there subsidies for, you know, taking care of um, family members that you don't um, take tax deductions for that don't live in your home? And do, do you see ballots or measures coming forward that would address that with parents that live in town that are retired that you're helping take care of? You know, I don't, I really don't see much happening right now in terms of funding for long-term care. Mm -hmm. And our current situation, the federal government funds 
home health services, which is Medicare services, but those services are sporadic and intermittent. So you have to have a skilled need, meaning there's got to be some acute situation that requires a nurse or a therapist in order for home health to be prescribed by a physician, which is required, and for those services to be implemented. And that's a very robust industry because that is just one component of the care. On the other end of the spectrum, there is, and you referenced this earlier, there Medicaid is for people who have no uh, very, very small amounts of resources and assets. So I believe it's, um, you can't have over $3,000 in assets. And there's a lot of rules and regulations about what do you do with your money to get to that point to, so that you could be eligible for Medicaid. Medicaid, this is, this is why in our country it's so very complicated. Medicaid is state funded, half federal, half state funded. So there's 50 different rules and regulations state by state over what's covered. So some states have very robust Medicaid programs and that is long-term home and community-based services programs. So there are some states that have very good care uh, programs in place for people to help them stay in the communities and not go to nursing homes. It is the people in the middle, the people that have more than $3,000 in assets and less than $5 million in assets, which is probably, what, 85% of America uh, or more. And there are no funding mechanisms for those people except for long-term care insurance should they be wise enough to have purchased that insurance when they were, say, in their 50s and not wait until they had some type of, a, of an illness that would prevent them from purchasing that. So we have created a very complicated, very um, segmented system of care, and it is possible that if we look at how do we provide health care in general for people, then we may also look at how does that translate into long-term health care at home, which is the lowest cost setting and also probably the safest. Yeah, and I think that that doesn't hit home enough. I, and I believe that logic, anyone who's been to a doctor um, without coverage or gone to the emergency room and received a bill would think that at-home care sounds even more expensive and more elite and custom. But I was talking to the founder of this um, uh, at-your-door at nurses service, and mm -hmm. she was talking about the actual cost of her driving around and, and allocating her time that way. This is prior to the pandemic. Um, at the amount of savings and, due, and the accuracy of diagnoses was unbelievable. It was upwards of 65% of everyone's visit. And she said, you know, it seems custom and, and unique and elite. And she was like, and if we could just switch some of our models to this, we would save so much money in healthcare. Just so, so many things. And I think people get confused about at-home care and how much there is to be saved. Can you kind of speak to that? Um, the Well, it's one-on-one -on -one care for the most part. So you are paying Whatever the charge is, is for someone to be there <laughs> with you. Um, once that care gets to be over about eight to 10 hours a day, you could probably get um, similar, well, you would probably for the cost, want to go to some type of a, a congregate living facility 
if they were available and safe. Mm -hmm. So, um, but the, where, where the lower lowest cost setting comes in is if you are comparing that with being hospitalized um, or being in a long-term care facility. But right. the hospitalization cost is really the biggest one. And our hospitals have been really intertwined in how we fund, um, how we fund our in-home care services. And oddly enough, um, CMS, which is the Center for Medicaid Ser Medicare Services, just changed the reimbursement rate and they still are paying more they'll reimburse a home health agency more if a person is being referred from an acute setting versus a community which makes absolutely no sense at this day and time but that that's this year that just happened so we're still not thinking in terms of what's in the best interest of people who are aging and where do they want to age? And what's it going to cost for them to do that? I will say that Medicare Advantage is this year for the first time paying for some in-home care services that are non-medical in nature. Mm -hmm. And they're also now looking at what we call social determinants of care. And what that means is, in addition to whatever the care you personally need, there's all kinds of other things that you have to take into consideration. Access to food. Um, access to the house, ex, you know, yeah. the um, access to a safe environment. So a lot of those things are now being considered because when someone leaves a hospital and goes home, if they have someone who just checks in to make certain, is it a clean space? Is it a clean, you know, is it clean enough for them to be there? Is there someone there who can help provide their care is there food in the home and do they have a way to get back to the doctor's office or to set up telehealth so that they can confer with the doctor should they have a problem so all of those things um, are now being paid for in a just a small way but it's it's a beginning through some of the medicare advantage plans yeah it sounds like it needs to expedite i'm wondering given that we, you know, it seems like a, a simple choice at this point, but what would you say some of the top reasons that people are not choosing um, healthcare at home right now? Uh, I think the biggest reason is the referral sources, which uh -huh. would be your discharge planners in the hospitals, your physicians find it easier and it has been easier. Although I will say because of COVID-19, some of those restrictions have been relaxed, but it's much easier to make a referral to a congregate setting than it is a home setting. Because when they do go home, you don't know all those factors. So, but you know, if you put someone in a nursing home or in a subacute for a hospital, you know that uh, what that situation is, and that you are always going to have someone there, and that you can always reach them. So, what about things like chronic disease? Are those um, situations that are more ideally suited towards homes, or are they more ideally suited towards um, healthcare at home? You know, the chronic diseases, you would have to also look at the other factors for that person. So I don't think there's a one size fits all yeah. for answer for any of these questions, but definitely looking at long term chronic diseases and debilitating diseases specifically is uh, is something that from a health policy perspective, we do need need to do it is it, um, 
I haven't really differentiated between cognitive uh, issues and physical issues, and there's also a huge difference there. Someone who is physically frail and has a long-term degenerative disease is a different care scenario than someone who is physically robust and has a cognitive decline to dementia or Alzheimer's, who may be totally physically active, but incapable of making any kinds of decisions or providing any kind of safety for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you just mentioned dementia Alzheimer's and um, it, because it is so prevalent and, um, and I'm sure that everyone listening knows of someone has a family member that's kind of been affected or afflicted. I'm wondering, can you walk us through kind of the beginning stages of how the things that you would consider in, in beginning to consider um, care? be it whether you're considering at-home care or institutionalized care for an elderly parent who's beginning the process of the disease of dementia or Alzheimer's? Uh, the first thing I would do is make certain that that person who is exhibiting those dementia-like or Alzheimer's-like symptoms, I would make certain that that is in fact what it is. Um, mm -hmm sometimes malnourishment, you know, if, uh, if a person's spouse has died and they're living alone, they may be eating Reese's peanut butter cups three times a day. And, uh, and malnourishment can actually cause a dementia kind of uh, behavior. The same thing with medication, contraindications with medications. If a person is seeing multiple doctors, sometimes they they have medications that are making them, um, you know, exhibit symptoms of dementia. So first thing I would do is rule out um, that that it's not something other than an, a type of organic dementia. And if it is, a dementia or Alzheimer's you're going, is a long-term progressive disease. So it's only going to get worse. Eventually, if the person lives long enough, they're going to need 24-7, 365 care. So the first thing I would do is rule it out. The second thing I would do is read about it. What is it? How do you talk to people who have a dementia? How do you make their life easier? What are the types of triggers that are going to upset them and how can you avoid that? And then there's usually some minor modifications you can make to the physical surroundings or minor modifications that you can make in how they're cared for. Uh, for instance, a lot of behavior um, is repetitive, either speaking things over and over again or wanting to do activities over and over again. And something as simple as folding laundry can keep someone with the dementia busy for a long time. <laughs> or someone who loved to care for children, having giving them a baby doll um, to care for can also calm them down and, and be a, a great lifesaver. So there's, I would say, uh, make certain what you're dealing with first, educate yourself about how to deal with it. And then based on your financial resources and the support services, um, I think the best place I would have, I'm going to say this anyway, but this lock, uh, those memory units where you have someone who is safe and locked in, I think are probably the safest, but maybe not today. Hmm. But you can do that in your home. You can actually create a situation where someone does have an area they can roam in, not get out of the house and be safe. Yeah. And their home, as we've talked about the importance of that being. I'm wondering um, when you look towards the future, because, you know, the, the global climate seems to be coming to you and addressing, you know, a lot of the things that you've spoken to. Has that changed your goals for the next like one to three years 
um, given uh, core cubed or um, help choose home uh, either one of those endeavors has it changed or are, are the goals the same and if so what are some of them well, the goals for Core Cubed are the same, and that is really just business goals. We'd like to continue to grow every year. We'd yeah. like for our employees to continue to um, to learn more and and be better at what they do. Um, but the goals for Help Choose Home have actually this year. I'm focusing on safety and safety at home as the issue that I think is probably the most important issue right now, and that's really um, that's been the focus it's a new focus. I was going to do something else, but that's the focus. And I've done, I have recorded three podcasts so far. And I'll tell you, I'm really um, excited about the protocols in place that the home health agencies have done and how quickly that they have put those in place and also how they've been just ingenious in getting their protective equipment, their personal protective equipment, not only for the people who are providing the care, but for their patients as well. So um, they're coming up with all kinds of creative ways to do that. Um, and, and when they run into a roadblock, um, for instance, how do you, how do you change protective equipment if you're mm. servicing someone in a, you know, in a, a close setting and you don't want the neighbors to know that they have COVID-19. So it's all kinds of nuances in terms of what these agencies are having to discover and create and, and come up with and how they communicate. Um, and the, the um, telehealth, the usage of telehealth and creative uses yeah. of telehealth and the outreach, <coughs> excuse me, the outreach that these agencies are doing is just amazing. You know, they're, they are, it's causing people to touch other people touch i don't mean physically <laughs> to reach out to other people um in ways that we've not done in this industry before and it's actually really uh, heartwarming absolutely i agree i think that the the way healthcare professionals in general have um changed and even questioned you know the necessity of person-to-person -person touching i was talking to um a chiropractic pelvic floor specialist yesterday and she was saying um the first moment of her conversation with her clients was convincing them, helping un helping them understand how the relationship and the work could continue and how it had changed her relationship with her craft, you know, and, and really looking at being able to expand her knowledge of her medicine and um, what she was doing and all of her techniques. Um, I know that you, you know, you have a platform. Well, first of all, can you tell everyone um, what your podcast is called and where they can listen to it? It is Help Choose Home and we um, are pretty much everywhere. If you just, we're at uh, Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, so, um, and lots of other um, smaller, <laughs> yeah, you know, venues, but they can pretty much reach us, reach us anywhere. Fantastic. So it's um, Help Choose Home and type that in, you guys can all listen to it. And I know your career is based around providing advice and, and the companies that you've built and things of that nature. And so my final question that I always ask every podcaster, um, I think this one will be uh, uniquely curated for you, but I'm wondering if, um, if someone approached you who is looking for the, the, your top three pieces of advice, garnering what you've garnered over the past since 1998 to now regarding business and um, at home healthcare, like all of those things combined, what are your top three pieces of advice today 
that you would offer someone looking to either get involved or um, consider things as we're moving forward? Um, if you're talking specifically about them getting into healthcare at home, I would um, probably say the same things I said about caring for an Alzheimer's patient, yeah. that uh, they really do need to understand the industry uh, first before they get in there. But, you know, from a... Um, from a just a personal business standpoint, I have found the number one thing I always end up saying people is if you have an idea, just do it. You know, the I think what stops most people is this fear that they're going to fail or fear that maybe what they're doing is silly. But once you decide what you're going to do, then there you just need to do it. And this the other thing would be persistence. I have found that persistence is probably the most my most valuable trait. Um, not that I don't think you should understand the industry and be clear about where you're going, but I think if um, if you really feel strongly that what you have now that has to be supported by someone actually purchasing it but but you really need to be persistent about that and you know change your goals modify things um, always pay attention to what works and then do more of what works yeah absolutely and i think it's funny how many companies tend to forget that you know that you find people hitting this brick wall over and over and over and, and it's just this simple act of saying that's not working, perhaps go towards what is working. <laughs> um, it's ironic because it sounds rote and obvious. And I, I think that that's frequently the downfall of a lot of businesses um, who are hurting in any areas from economic to just other growth. So I've got understand the industry. And if you have an idea, just do it and stay persistent and go yes. towards what works. Good. Very simple and very crucial. Um, like every other commandment in the world. Well, we are out of time, Marilee, but I want to say thank you so much. I really appreciate your candor and, um, and giving us all of your uh, wisdom today. Thank you, Patricia. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. For everyone listening, we've been talking to Marilee Orsini. You can learn more at corecubed.com. Until we speak again next time, remember to stay safe, stay well, and always bet on yourself. Sunshine.